Greetings, friends. Let us prepare to listen as we study God's word in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we see where deep inner happiness comes from. What truly is a state of human flourishing or a fullness of earthly life. And we learn that true flourishing is a life that is lived in light of the eternal kingdom of God, where down is the new up. Last week, we started a new series uh, through which is what is probably the most famous sermon from all of Scripture and definitely the most famous teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some consider this sermon the epitome of the teachings of Jesus and therefore the essence of Christianity. Some have dubbed this the Jesus Manifesto, and I like that. Now, this sermon is Jesus' answer, as we said last week, to the universal philosophical and religious quest and question, how can a person truly be happy? Or what is the good life? And if you were to summarize the teaching of this sermon, I think in two themes, it would really be flourishing or blessedness and human wholeness. These are the things that Jesus is teaching. These are the things that Jesus is inviting his people into. Now, as we said last week, excuse me, this sermon is not rules to get into the kingdom of God. God invites us into his kingdom because King Jesus has made that way possible through his life, through his death for us, through his resurrection, through his ruling and reigning. He has opened up the way of the kingdom of God and invited any and all into it. This sermon is also not unattainable standards just to get us to see that we can't possibly keep the rules, so we should stop trying. This sermon is not rules of how we must behave if we are to stay in the kingdom. It is so much deeper than that. This sermon is not just a vision of what life will be like one day when God physically reigns on earth, but it is the possibility of God's kingdom ruling and reigning now in our hearts, in our lives. I believe that what Jesus is saying is this. Now that I am here, God's new world is coming into being. And once we realize that the power of the presence of Jesus even in our own lives. You'll see that this sermon is really about habits of heart which anticipate the new world, the kingdom of God, even here and now. These qualities, purity of heart, mercy, and so on, are not things that you have to do to earn a reward or a payment that you give to God. Nor are they the rules of conduct now that you become a Christian. They are signs of life, the language of the new life, the life of the kingdom of heaven, the life which Jesus came to bring. Now, I mentioned last week that I love this quote by uh, Jehoiakim or Joachim Jeremiah. And this is kind of, for me, I do this. When I study, when I teach, I kind of find one quote or one passage that kind of becomes the lens through which I, you know, approach a passage. And so for me, this quote has just been so helpful in understanding how to approach the Sermon on the Mount. Well, he writes, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it is not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourself should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So this is about signs, 
symptoms, examples of what it means when God's kingdom has broken into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. This sermon is really about living as the people of God, as light, which lights up the world. Salt, which salts the earth. Jesus' sermon is not so much about doing as it is about being. Jesus' example, his life, his teaching is meant to transform his people into people who do what is right because that's the kind of people they have become by the power of the Spirit of God at work in them. Now, this sermon of Jesus has been used for centuries to shape and form God's people into the way of Jesus, into the way of God's kingdom, and we are believing that that is exactly what the Spirit of God will do in us as we submit to the teaching of Jesus, as we open our hearts and minds to learn his way. Now, Jesus' sermon begins with nine pronouncements of blessing known as the beatitude. Now, beatitude uh, is a weird word, right? And it's Latin, and I don't know why we've decided to keep this uh, in our Bibles because, you know, anybody who just on the street speaks English doesn't even know what this means. But it literally just means happy, right? It comes from the Latin word beatus. And though we call this first section the sermon uh, of the sermon, the Beatitudes, our modern term happy does not quite capture what Jesus was getting at here. We mentioned this last week, but happiness in our culture is, we, we use this word more as like a feeling based on our current circumstance. But what Jesus is describing is, is really so much deeper than that. Jesus' phrase, blessed, um, it's also a Greek word, makarios, it's drenched in rich biblical history. This term in Greek, makarios, is a deep inner happiness, a state of human flourishing or fullness of earthly life. And some have even translated the word joyful, right? And we know, right, we distinguish happy from joyful because joy is a state of being independent of current circumstances. And that would be uh, quite fitting for what Jesus is talking about here. Now, though it does not fit our modern idea of happiness, it would equally be a mistake to turn this into a divine blessing alone. But rather, this blessedness is in line with the blessedness described in the wisdom literature of Scripture. Remember, in the book of Psalms, it begins with this picture of a flourishing tree planted by rivers of water that bears fruit in each season. It starts this way, blessed, some translations say, oh, how joyful or flourishing are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, but who delight in the law of Yahweh. They meditate on it day and night. They will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. So there is a promised richness of life to those who abide in the way of Yahweh, even through life's various twists turns and difficulties. Another book of wisdom literature that we have is the Proverbs, and it actually opens up in a very similar way. Proverbs chapter 1 portrays lady wisdom, and she stands in the town square as everyone passes by. She calls out with an offer of wisdom of the good life, of flourishing to anyone who will hear and respond. Her offer, who wants the good life, who wants endurance, who wants fulfillment, then listen, tune in, attend your ears to my voice, she says. Now, if we take these together, blessedness or flourishing in biblical terms is not having a Mai Tai on the beach, right, in some like tropical location, but rather it's someone who has a strong, unshakable foundation, one who is never moved, no matter the situation, or described as fruitful in all the right places, in all the right seasons. Never lacking, never drying up, always prospering. 
fulfilled and at peace, regardless of life's varied circumstances and experience, this life always shows signs of health, signs of life. See, blessedness in Scripture is a picture of a flourishing life in the midst of the real world of evil, of injustice, and pain. That's what it is. Now, Jesus begins his sermon by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like. What true well-being looks like in the kingdom of God. So the Beatitudes then like the rest of wisdom literature and scripture, are an implicit invitation to consider what the best way of being in the world is and to pursue it. You remember last week I talked about how all character is formed by identifying the goal, identifying the steps that take us to that goal, and practicing those steps, those rhythms, those habits, those disciplines, until they become a part of our very being. Right? So this is the invitation in all wisdom literature in Scripture. Listen, tune your ear in, identify what the offer is, flourishing the good life. What are the steps, the habits, the rhythms that cultivate the good life? Practice those until they become part of your very being. That is the invitation. And so in light of this sermon and what we talked about last week, true flourishing is a life that is lived in light of the eternal kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus claims is here now and at work through him. Now, Jesus' flourishing, as we're going to see, is truly upside down. He sets our worlds and even many of our Christian values completely on their heads. Jesus is a countercultural force to be reckoned with. And so I think the rule with this sermon is this down is the new up. So Jesus begins, and we're just going to cover these first three blessings this morning. He says, Flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Flourishing are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, you can imagine when the original audience heard these words come out of Jesus' mouth, they must have been shocked. You know, the region that Jesus is in is the region of Galilee. This is where most of his ministry was. And this is really considered kind of the riffraff of Israel at the time. Uh, in Sonoma County, we um, have a county right next to us called Lake County. And most people in Lake County no longer have their teeth because it is like the meth capital of California. And it is just a really sketchy place. And... You know, you want to have a wild time, you just go up to Lake County for a weekend trip and you'll see all sorts of <laughs> interesting creatures. And, you know, the big thing happening in Lake County is Walmart. And I think I'm kind of showing my hand here a little bit, so I'm just going to move on. But this is, in a sense, the way that Galileans were viewed, right? The backcountry people, like people who live off the 99 in Fresno, you know, and all those places. And we're like, oh, we're the coastal people of California. We're so posh and educated and wise. And then there's those people. This is how these people were thought of. And you can read this in the New Testament, right? Oh, the Pharisees say, search the scriptures. No prophet ever arises out of Galilee. Or even among the Galileans. They say, come, meet the prophet from Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. Pfft. Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right? So all sorts of people throwing shades on all other kinds of people. This is the way that this group of people are thought of. It must have been shocking as Jesus is saying, you people are the flourishing people. You are the ones that the kingdom of heaven belongs to. You are the ones that will inherit the earth. Now, 
Jonathan Pennington, he says in his commentary, today's readers, now 2,000 years into Christian history, are so accustomed to thinking positively about the content of the Beatitudes that we often fail to look directly at their darkness. But when we do, we see that the condition of each blessing is not immediately and apparently a vision of positive human flourishing. Despite what blessing would initially indicate to any ancient reader, rather what Jesus proclaims as being a state of flourishing includes many things that humanity naturally and even vehemently seeks to avoid. Poverty of spirit, mourning, humility, hunger and thirst, mercifulness and peacemaking he notes, things that are only required to those who have wronged us, and especially suffering through persecution. These are not natural virtues, right? These are not things that like, well, what are you pursuing in your life? Poorness of spirit. I'm pursuing mourning. Like, oh, okay, like you need to go see a counselor, I think, right? These are not natural to us, and these are things we consistently try to avoid in our lives. In our culture, we are a culture that is so concerned with our own comforts, with our own freedoms, with our own rights. We are vehemently opposed to these type of virtues that Jesus says actually are flourishing. Hmm. So what can they possibly mean? So we're going to look at these three this morning, right? So let's start with this first one, the poor in spirit. I think this might be one of the most misunderstood beatitudes of all of them. And upon first examination, to be poor in any sense seems to be the opposite of flourishing, doesn't it? In the ancient Near Eastern and Greco-Roman setting of honor and shame, the poor in spirit are in low places of society. They would not be identified as well-off in any sense or possessors of anything of value, especially a kingdom. And this is why we must think deeply about what Jesus is saying here. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus pronounces the same blessedness upon the poor. Blessed are you poor. And he doesn't add the in spirit, but Matthew does. He highlights the poorness of spirit. So the question that people have wrestled with for many years is, well, which one is it? Well, it is both. The Hebrew word that is used throughout Scripture to describe the poor is the word anawim. And this is a fascinating word, and depending on its context, it can mean all sorts of things. It can mean poor. It can mean someone who is oppressed by rich and powerful people, rulers. It can mean just the powerless, the needy, humble, lowly, or even pious. In Scripture, the poor are not just poor economically, but the poor are poor socially and relationally. They have no one to help them. They have no social connection to lift them from their helpless situation, and therefore they are pictured as crying out to Yahweh in childlike dependence and expectation. They're pictured as helpless, hopeless, and without worth or value in our world. And therefore, they look to God alone as protector, provider, as deliverer. Now, you, remind, you might remember how many of the Psalms use this kind of language of looking to God alone for help, for rescue, uh, and for provision. This person the psalmist, is representing a person who is poor in spirit. Listen to Psalm 123. I lift my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a female servant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shows us mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. 
we have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant of contempt from the proud. So this is just one representation of someone who is poor in spirit. They're looking around, and you know, one translation, I think it's Eugene Peterson's The Message, he talks about, we've been kicked in the teeth. We've been abused. We've been struck down. Lord, we're looking to you alone. You're the only one who cares for us. You're the only one who can deliver. Now, if this is the state of the poor in spirit, listen to Isaiah describe how God feels about the poor in spirit. Isaiah 57 and Isaiah 66, this actually comes from the message, the translation. It says, a message from the high and towering God who lives in eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I live in the high and holy places, but also with the low-spirited, the spirit-crushed, and what I do is put new spirit in them. I get them up and on their feet again. You can hear God's concern, God's care for those who are low-spirited or spirit-crushed. Or here from Isaiah 66, these are the ones I look on with grace, favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. God is saying, in a sense, these are my people. These are the ones that I identify with. These are the ones that I am in close proximity to, I live with. Now, we can see that this looking to God alone for salvation is not exclusive to the poor, right? This is actually possible for anyone in good times and bad, in little and in abundance, to have their eyes, their hopes, their expectation on God alone. And truly, the righteous of Scripture, of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, are seen to have this quality at work in them. From Abraham to Deborah to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and David, and Joshua, and everyone in between. Those who have been righteous before God have lived in this state. Even though they do have power, maybe they do have influence, what they're saying is, oh, well, none of that actually matters. Our eyes are on you. We're looking to you, Lord. And Israel was always in the best state when this was their posture. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, I think the reason the scripture highlights the poor is because the poor know and experience firsthand what is actually true of all people, and that is that nothing humanly possible can rescue, protect, and redeem us. Only God alone. Only in God alone are our souls truly at rest. Now, the opposite of the poor in spirit, if this helps clarify it all, would be those who are rich in pride and self-reliance, those who are rich in independence and in wisdom that has no need for God. And you know, the Psalms talk about this all the time. Those who say in their heart, there is no God. Those who say, oh, God will never bring this to account. Those, God is in none of their thoughts, the psalmist said. Now, let's make it clear, God is not opposed to human effort, to skill, to power, to wisdom, or strength, but he is opposed to these things when they are used independent of him or in defiance or disregard of him. And in Scripture, true wisdom, power, and skill know that these are gifts beyond themselves. These are gifts from God. Now, Jesus claims that those who are needy, dependent and humble before God, looking to him, are the truly flourishing of this world. This is where true flourishing is found, and to these and these alone belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember last week we talked about what the kingdom of heaven is. It's not just a spiritual state of being where disembodied souls, you know, climb away into the clouds and play on harps forever and ever and ever. This is the new world that is to come. This is a totally healed new creation. 
This is absolute wholeness and well-being physically, spiritually, socially, and economically. That is what is promised these who are poor in spirit. Jesus goes on, flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, radically antithetical to our way of thinking to see someone who is mourning as a flourishing person. What can Jesus possibly mean? Now, most commentators agree that the Beatitudes seem to be an echoing of Isaiah 61. Remember, Isaiah 61 shows the servant of Yahweh who has come to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, garments of praise for spirits who are poor or heavy. So remember there in Isaiah 61, in this context, they were mourning and brokenhearted over their own personal as well as the national failures of Israel. These are those coming out of the exile. They had forsaken the way of Yahweh and they had suffered dearly for their foolishness and sin. It had meant the destruction of their homes, of their capital city, the temple of Yahweh, and it had meant the scattering of their people into foreign lands, enslaved and in exile for 70 years. But the servant of Yahweh is on the scene to reverse their fortunes to restore, to renew, to bring healing. Now, those who mourn then or are brokenhearted must be a way of saying those grieving our own sin and the sin and brokenness of the world. It would be those brokenhearted at the state of life We look around the world and we see, man, humanity has gone off the rails. We are not what God created us to be. I mean, just read the news headlines. I do this every day, and gosh, it is dismal. It's almost like we just highlight the absolute worst in humanity. Oftentimes, humans have borne more of the image of the beast than the image of our creator. And as I said, just reading the news on a regular basis, we see the depths of brokenness and depravity of humanity, and sometimes our first reaction might be anger and outrage, but do we mourn? Does it break our hearts when we look at the state of the world? And do we direct that mourning to the Lord as the psalmist prayed, how long, O Lord? How long? Jesus says, those who are brokenhearted, mourning over the state of the world, the state of humanity, are truly flourishing, and they will receive comfort. Their mourning has an answer. Their mourning has a response from God, and that is his comfort, a filling up, a restoring and healing of the creation, and a banishment of the curse of sin, brokenness, chaos, and death. Remember the promise of Revelation 21.4, where it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The morning is coming to an end. It has an expiration date. Now thirdly, Jesus says, flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, in our minds, the meek are anything but flourishing. Aren't they the stepped on, pushed over, doormats of the world. This would have been a radical declaration in the first century because it was the might 
and brutality of Rome that had conquered the world. This time, the first century, and also this region, Galilee, in which Jesus would have preached this sermon, was actually known for many Jewish messianic revolutionaries and the zealot rebellions. You guys might have been here last week when I mentioned this. The zealots were a group of Jews living in the time of Jesus who believed that they must take the land of Israel and the kingdom back by force. And so they were known as zealots, assassins, or daggermen. And that was because they would carry these daggers under their cloaks and they would kill Roman soldiers with them. Now, all of this was a hearkening back to the time of the Maccabean Revolt under the Hasmonean and Seleucid empires where the Maccabeans had actually taken back the kingdom, the Temple Mount and the worship of Yahweh by overthrowing the Seleucids. And so the zealots of that time just thought, well, we've been you know, dethroned, we've been removed from our place of authority, we're just gonna take it back. That must be what we're supposed to do. This is what David did in times past, so this is, must be the way to do it. Now, this is also radical in our day and age because the meek are the opposite of those who rule our world. It is the shrewd, the powerful, the assertive, the cutthroat who win at this life. You know, one honest commentator reading these words of Jesus said this, okay, blessing on the little people because they will be granted the earth. It's almost comical when put like that. The meek may inherit heaven, he says, but the entrepreneur and the revolutionary will inherit the earth. When we think about this just from our own vantage point, the way the world works, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Like, remember years ago, was it Nixon? Who was it? With the presidential elections, it was the first one that was ever televised. And I think it was JFK and Nixon, am I right? Something like that. And it was just the way that JFK just had this confidence in himself, right? Nixon probably had, they said, the better argument, but just the way that JFK carried himself with such confidence that people were like, that's the man, right? These are the kind of people we want in power, not somebody who will be pushed over, not someone who's meek and mild, someone who is assertive, shrewd, and powerful, cutthroat. These are the ones who rule the world. History shows it. So when we think about this historically, even presently, this is laughable. This is absurd. So what can this possibly mean? What is meekness? Well, the greatest example we have of meekness is Jesus. Remember when Jesus stands accused before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, or even before Pontius Pilate, the Roman representative. What is his posture? He is quiet. He is calm. He is collected, almost passive at his own condemnation. His is the poise of not having to assert oneself. Peter the Apostle later would comment on this. He says this, It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God, aware of God's rule, aware of God's sovereignty, aware of God's presence. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, right? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God for to this you were called. This is the way you ought to live, is what he's saying. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Listen to what it says about him. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Far from being weakness, meekness is actually very strong 
and resilient. It is anti-fragile because it rests and strongly trusts in the sovereign mercy, justice, and goodness of God. See, Jesus, he committed himself to the Father. He knew the plan of the Father. He could stand there as actually a pillar of strength before Pontius Pilate, before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He didn't even have to open his mouth because Yahweh was his defense. Because through the cross, through his suffering, through his meekness, he would actually topple the power of Rome. It's incredible. Now, in this beatitude, Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 37. And I'll just read us the highlights from this psalm. Delight yourself in Yahweh. Verse 6, he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Verse 8, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Verse 9, for those who hope in Yahweh will inherit the land. Verse 11, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous person utters wisdom and their tongue speaks what is just. Verse 37, there is a future for the person of peace. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous comes from where? From the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. This is the promise. You know, as I was thinking about these Beatitudes, it's almost like, gosh, Scripture had been saying this all along. But after years and years and years and years of getting kicked in the teeth, of getting beaten down, you just wonder, where, Lord? How long? When? See, what Jesus is doing is he is collecting these promises And he's saying, now in me, because I am here, these are coming into being. I am gifting you the kingdom, the comfort, and the earth because it belongs to me. The righteous surely have a reward. The meek will inherit the earth. See, the meek live and rest in the truth of the goodness and sovereignty of God. Meekness is holding our judgments. As the psalm said, not giving in to wrath or retaliation, holding our own cutthroatedness when wronged and sinned against, knowing and resting in the fact that it is God who is judge and will one day set the world right and will gift the world to his meek people. Jesus says the meek are the truly flourishing ones, and to them belongs the world. So where are we so far? Jesus teaches us the needy and dependent, broken-hearted and mourning, little, lowly people are the ones who are truly flourishing. To them belongs the kingdom, ultimate comfort, and the right to the earth. See, here it is, that down is the new up, because in the kingdom of God, there is a complete turnaround. Those now on top will be on the bottom, and those now on the lowest of the low will be lifted very high. And all nine Beatitudes speak of this great reversal and the last judgment through the coming of the kingdom of God. You know what's really interesting? You guys know the, um, Hannah, uh, the mother of Samuel? It's fascinating uh, to read her poem almost as a way to uh, read the rest of 1 Samuel, how God is reversing the stations. He's taking somebody who is mighty, powerful, you know, head and shoulders above everyone else, Saul, this beautiful man. Saul falls, but he lifts the shepherd boy from the fields, 
and makes him inherit the kingdom of God. It's this radical reversal. And Hannah says this, right? She says, Yahweh, you lift the poor from the dung heap. You make them inherit the throne of princes for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. And the fascinating thing is Mary, the mother of Jesus, she picks up and kind of um, retells this poem of Hannah in her own language. It's almost like she's been marinating in this truth of Scripture, and it becomes her own. My soul magnifies the Lord. And she basically says the same thing, for he takes the lowly and he caused them to inherit the throne. It's this great reversal in the kingdom of God. And some of us may be thinking, as I said we would, this is so ridiculous and countercultural. How can you actually live this way? It makes sense that people have said, no, 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 you just wait till the kingdom comes. Because no one could actually live like this. You get kicked around. You get taken advantage of. You get walked all over. One must assert themselves. It's idealistic and unrealistic in the real world. And it's true, the people of God have wrestled with these beatitudes for that very reason and what to do with them for two millennia. So here is the challenge. Do we take Jesus seriously and literally, or do we find some way to justify ourselves and work our way around these and find a different way? (laughs) Now, there's an author, Gerald Sitzer, And he wrote this book called Resilient Faith. And he argues that the Christian community of the first century, the first Christians, were able to influence the world in the way that they did. These who have turned the world upside down, they say, have come here too. Remember, the Roman emperors were so frustrated because through just the sheer charity and kindness of the Christian community. They were making more converts to Christianity than the Romans were to paganism. He says they were able to influence the world in the way they did because they found a third way. If Rome and pagan culture was the predominant culture, the first way, he says Judaism was a second way. It was a subculture It had its own markets, its own customs and life that were separate from the prevailing Roman culture. Essentially, there were these two parallel cultures running side by side, but Christianity emerged as a third way. It was indistinguishable in some sense from Roman culture in terms of social life and engagement, and yet this community was completely countercultural. As one historian notes, it was said of the Christians, they share everything but their beds. Generous with their time, their money, and their resources, but stingy sexually with their bodies. This is how they live. Years ago, Tim Keller gave an address to church leaders in the Bay Area, and he highlighted the countercultural practices of the early church. And he said this. He gave five ways that the early church was countercultural. He said, number one, the early church was multi-ethnic and experienced a unity across ethnic and cultural boundaries that was startling. Number two, the early church was a community of nonviolence, forgiving, excuse me, forgiveness and reconciliation, peacemaking. Number three, the early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Number four, it was a community committed to the sanctity of of life. We know the stories that the Romans would put their children out. If it wasn't a boy, a daughter would be put out of the bounds of the city or taken to the forest to be eaten by wolves. But it was a Christian community that began the first orphanages, bringing these children into their own homes and raising them as their own. Lastly, he says, it was a sexual counterculture. And essentially, they were living out the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Keller concluded that it was because the early church didn't fit with its surrounding culture, but rather challenged it in love, that Christianity eventually had such an effect on it. All this to say, 
It is a temptation for the people of God in this cultural moment to fall into the trap of the first and the second way. Now, I think there are two aspects to the first way, right? To give into the cultural norms of the day, we can do that in two ways. One is when the church is indistinguishable from the culture in its priorities and goals. Stingy with our resources, disregarding the needs of the poor, doing justice and mercy, and yet generous and promiscuous with our bodies. No restraint on our sexual appetites. And we see that. It's rampant in the church. Another way, though, in which the church can live in the first way is to fight fire with fire and enter into the cultural wars seeking to establish the church's authority and presence in the culture by force. And many are saying that this is actually the only faithful way to live today. We see the things that are going on in government and in our schools, and so, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to get prayer back in the schools. We're going to get Christian representation back into politics. This is a Christian nation. We're going to reclaim it as such. I'm paraphrasing the words of Christian historian John Dixon here when I say this. When the church has done that, it has never gone well for the world, and it has not gone well for the church. And historically, you can look, it's actually when the church has lived as disenfranchised, doing good work like Jesus, waiting for God's deliverance and His rescue, that the church has had the most radical influence on society. Always. I mean, all we have to do is read our history books, and we'll realize that whenever the church has been weak or, let's say, poor in spirit, God has shown themselves mighty on their behalf. And he has brought many into his kingdom. He has shown the presence of his kingdom in powerful ways. Now, the second way is to withdraw from culture. To be a subculture within the broader culture that has little to no effect on anyone or anything. Well, it's all going to burn. We're just waiting for the judgment to come. We're just hiding out. No. God has called us to be light and to be salt, to be the presence of Jesus, of his life in the world. The church ought to be the model to society of righteousness and justice, of peacemaking, of unity and diversity of kindness and generosity, of empathy and compassion, of listening and learning, of humility and meekness. You know, disciples of Jesus live in a way that both resonates with the deep longings of our culture, yet simultaneously defies the power, practices, and idols of that culture. I love Eugene Peterson's vision for the church. He just says, you know, the church is a colony of heaven, in the country of death. It's this outpost of the kingdom of God. And when people see the way that we live with one another, the way that we treat our enemies, the way that we treat the other, those who strongly disagree with us or would persecute us, that when they see our responses, they think, well, what is this? This is otherworldly. Yes, this is kingdom of heaven stuff. That's what this is. Remember, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of disciples, but it is signs, symptoms, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under death, sin, and the devil. We are signs of that kingdom life. Now, I'm way over my time, so I need to wrap this up. And my conclusion is like two pages long. So what do we do? (laughs) Keep going. I want to finish by saying these Beatitudes are not just the kingdom way. They are the Jesus way. 
because all of these characteristics, these virtues, are actually seen powerfully in the life of Jesus. Now, this comes again from Jonathan Pennington. He says, Jesus gives us a vision of a way of being in the world that will result in our flourishing. Now, we would be suspicious and disappointed if he were teaching this cerebrally, but did not know or experience or model it himself. Matthew, the author, helps us see that nothing could be farther from the truth. In his carefully crafted and thoughtful work, Matthew takes pains to show that Jesus models precisely what he commends to us in the Beatitudes. Jesus is humble and poor in spirit. Remember those words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And in me you will find rest for your souls. Jesus mourns and grieves. We think of the grave of Lazarus. You think of the state of Israel and the rejection of him. Jesus weeps at the sin and brokenness of the world. Jesus hungers and thirsts with longing for God's kingdom to be manifest. He is pure in heart. He shows mercy. Boy, does he not. He brings peace. And even as the primary sense of the Beatitudes proves to be the emphasis on unjust suffering and persecution for righteousness' sake, so too Jesus serves as the greatest example of the same. Far from these qualities making Jesus weak and ineffective, they drew thousands of broken, helpless, and disenfranchised people to him. His life was radically countercultural and yet so powerful and attractive. And these same qualities and characters, as I mentioned, were at work in the early church and shook the world at the time. God wants to put that same life of Jesus on display here today in Orange County, in your life, in my life. He wants the kingdom to be put on display through you, not just for the sake of the world, but also for the sake of your own flourishing, your own well-being. So my challenge or question or invitation is this, what if we actually lived as signs of the kingdom? What if we actually put into practice in our hearts and in our homes, at work, around our neighborhoods, in our politics, the upside-down kingdom of God? What if we lived in such a way that it provoked questions for which the gospel and the kingdom of God is the only answer? Jesus says this is the way of true flourishing. Will we believe him? Will we take him at his word? Will we reject the self-reliant, proud, assertive ways of our world and culture? And will we take up his way of life and learn from him? Dallas Willard says this, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's the invitation to us today, church.